I am very excited to teach this. I may have to spend two weeks on Holy Communion. There's just so much to cover. Uh, we covered baptism last week, but this week is Holy Communion. And to the Catholic, this is the most critical of all the sacraments because for them, this is fellowship with Jesus Christ in a way no other way affords. And I don't diminish their faith in that. I was talking with one of my Catholic friends this week, and we were discussing it. And uh, I told him, I said, you know, we Protestants give you Catholics a bad name. We run you down, we criticize you, and we don't even know everything you believe. And he said, brother, I forgive you. We're all one body. And I'm sure in his heart he says, and you guys are just a little still rebellious and Protestant, you know. I mean, the root for Protestant is protest. And Martin Luther's protest kept fragmenting after that. And anyway... We're still fragmenting. Even the word of faith is fragmented. Charismatica is fragmented. Pentecostalism is fragmented. And out of all of them, there's a remnant that will come to the fullness of the knowledge of Christ and will glorify him. But I, I don't want to waste time on that. I want to move forward because there's so much to cover. Let's review briefly. Sacrament, the term sacrament comes from the Latin sacramentus, which means mysteries. Mysteries are spoken of 27 times in the New Testament. And so a sacrament is a ritual or a rite that reflects some of the New Testament's mysteries. Obviously, 1 Corinthians 14 says, praying in tongues speaketh out mysteries. There's no ritual to symbolize or actualize that except to just do it, pray in the Spirit. We exhorted on that Friday night at prayer. And one of the Catholic definitions that struck me very deeply was a sacrament is a ritual that reflects or symbolizes a spiritual truth and in fact actualizes what it symbolizes. So what we saw last week is a sacrament is a ritual that makes power available. And we saw that with water baptism, power was made available. Baptism, Christ's baptism by John opened up the heavens, allowed the Holy Ghost to come upon him. That's power made available. Power at the Ethiopian eunuch's baptism caused him to be a new creature. His faith in Christ did, but caused him to be washed. And then all of a sudden, Philip is translated to Azotus 30 miles away. And now we know we, we are baptized for the remission of sins. And we have lots of testimonies about the power of God being demonstrated at water baptism. I think if we could teach it and expect it, we might see more of it. Um, uh, Papa Rick can testify, and so can some of the ladies that do our baptismal. Sometimes it absolutely boggles my mind that we can baptize two or three people, right, Rick? And they're in that tub. They've just come from home. It's Sunday morning. They are wearing clean clothes, shorts and a T-shirt. We have you, you guys, you see it. We have them in the water for less than a minute. We bring them up, and by the third person, that water's filthy. And it makes no sense to me. I can't even explain it. I think, do these people come to church with filthy clothes? No, they don't do that. They've been taught through baptism class. This is a sacred thing. So it's not that all of a sudden their clothes are dirty and we're washing their laundry, but every time we get done, that water is filthy and I cannot explain it. It makes no sense to me, except that it is the washing of the water of the word. It is water baptism. And it is a mystery, so we can only understand it so far. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a mystery. And so we say, I believe, and we move on, <laughs> which is really hard for scientists to do or analytics, but that's why not many wise are called. A sacrament makes the symbolized power available to the believer, which is why I want us to take these sacraments a lot more serious, because I believe if we'll honor them, more power will be made available. One of the other definitions is a material sign of an invisible mystery and seven sacraments of the Catholic Church, and we, will, we probably already acknowledge five of these, but baptism, communion, penance, confirmation, ordination, anointing the sick, and marriage. And I, I've, I perceive now in advance by the time we get to marriage, we may end up having, needing to have a Sunday morning service where we do vow renewal, because a lot of you did not get married in the house of God before a man of God or the people of God, and you may fall under a conviction and I would not have a problem doing a, a mass vow renewal if you want to come in a white dress and we do it right if your heart so compels you. If it doesn't, that's all right. But I think just like we're understanding baptism is a little more serious than we treated it. This morning we're going to see communion is way more serious than we treat it. And I think if we can see that marriage is a sacrament, the only one that prophesies the second coming of Christ, and to think 
people elope, people get married at the JOP, Justice of the Peace, or with an Elvis impersonator in Vegas. What a blasphemous way in ignorance. They're not set on blaspheming God. They're set on, let's just get married. And they, it's a sacrament that is prophetic about something that hasn't happened yet, but is coming like a freight train. Why would we not treat that as holy and irreverential as possible? The most important and premier sacrament to Catholics is Holy Communion, also called the Holy Eucharist. So why do they call it Eucharist? It just sounds really sacred and secret because Eucharist is Greek for thanksgiving, to give thanks. That's why they call it the Holy Eucharist because Jesus, when he had given thanks, break bread and said, take, eat. So that's why they call it the Eucharist. And we maybe mocked it in our ignorance, boasting ourselves, quote, word people. The sacramental, this is the sacramental meal of bread and wine. And we won't have time to cover all of what I want to teach, so we'll pick it up next week. But let me just throw this out there quickly. There are three symbolic breads of the Old Testament, and all of these converge into communion, what we call communion. I'm not sure we'll call it Holy Eucharist around here, uh, but I want you to know what it means when you see that the Catholics or the uh, Lutherans or the Anglicans or the Episcopals serve Holy Eucharist every day. One of the things the Catholics do is they have a candle that burns when the, the host is in the, what's it called, Eva? I think it's called the host. No, the host is the bread. It's in, they basically have a little tabernacle. So when, when they have the communion elements in their little golden tabernacle, they have a candle that burns on top of it, and that, that's replaying the Old Testament with the fire by night when God's presence is in the house. It's really cool. You know? And I went on a mission trip, and we did tortillas and tang for communion. And now I thought that was cool at 15, and now I think, really? Could we have done a little better? Maybe get some purple drink and not just orange tang? So at least it's closer. Anyway, three symbolic breads of the Old Testament. Bread number one is the Melchizedek bread or the bread and wine that Melchizedek brought in Genesis chapter 14 where Melchizedek, the mysterious priest king, appeared after the battle of the kings and he appears to Abraham and he meets him and Abraham gives him tithes of all and they have this priestly meal and it is said of David that he would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek because that's David's psalm about him though it's prophetic then we of course know Jesus is the Melchizedek priest forever because he's not of the tribe of Levi that's where the priest came from so there has to be a place for Jesus to be a priest though he's not a Levite he was a Judite the second bread was the show bread that was placed on the tabernacle upon the table of presence so I'll have some pictures of that so here's the tabernacle and a cutaway you see the menorah with the candelabra there on the far left, which is about five feet tall. And then to the right is the table of showbread. And then towards the Holy of Holies is the altar of incense. And then behind the curtain is the Ark of the Covenant. So the table of showbread there, which looks something like this, every Sabbath they would replace the 12 loaves of bread with fresh loaves. That is a little, uh, maybe not fully accurate because the Bible tells us each loaf was made of about four pounds of flour. That doesn't look like all of it weighs four pounds. But each bread, each loaf represented uh, one of the tribes of Israel. You also see a, a container for frankincense because that was to be put there and burned. And then a flagon to which they would pour wine libations or wine offerings. And it very quickly, knowing that this is the altar of showbread, looks a lot like a communion table. Here's another picture of one flagons for wine libation offerings that are commanded in numbers and then where, where, whatever they would have put the frankincense in. Those cakes look a little bit bigger. They're called cakes of bread. But can you imagine 48 pounds of bread? And the high priest had to eat them every Sabbath and not complain. And this was called the show bread, which is King James, or the bread of presence, which actually the Hebrew literally means the bread of your face. Because this commandment was given right after Moses... And the elders, Nadab, Abihu, and Aaron came off, and they saw God face to face. And the next command, and you will make me showbread, bread of your face. So there's a lot of symbolism there. We'll cover that next week because it's too cool to not cover it. Uh, and then, of course, the third bread is manna, the daily bread. 
That was supernatural. Manna literally means, what is it? It's what it comes from the Hebrew, what is it? Because they saw it, what is it? The Bible calls it corn from heaven or grain from heaven. And I used to, as a kid, think it was like literal loaves of bread that fell out of heaven. So you think, well, get an umbrella or stay inside when it happens because it's going to hit you. But you read closer and you find out that it was, a, it was a grain. And the Bible says they had to grind it or pound it like you would real wheat grain. And they had to make something with it. And they would either stew it or boil it and make oatmeal out of it, cream of wheat, or they would make cakes out of it. And they had it every day for 40 years until they crossed into the promised land. There's a lot of cool symbolism with that we'll get into. But what I want to talk about is the Last Supper. And this is where we got to move quick. So I'm going to read you a quote from a book which just summarizes something beautifully. Jesus of Nazareth was a Jew. We say this because when you look at the Last Supper, you have to look at it from a Jewish perspective. Jesus was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Everything he was doing was in fulfillment of the law. He was checking off boxes for the Mosaic law and for Talmudic traditions. There was Talmudic and Mosaic Messianic expectations for the Messiah. And Jesus comes along and he lines a lot of them up for them. He doesn't align every expectation or fulfill every expectation because they weren't all accurate. The premier one being, you, you're going to be a military leader that throws off the Romans. Not really. You're going to establish your kingdom now, and we're going to rule now. Not like you're expecting. So there were accurate expectations, and then like us, there were inaccurate expectations trying to interpret what Scripture meant. So know this. The Jews between Nehemiah, Ezra, and the coming of Christ, they studied their Old Testament, looking at the prophets, coming up with messianic expectations, looking for the coming of the messianic age and what that would look like. This is why when Herod said, where, where is the Christ from? And they knew exactly, quoting the minor prophet, that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. They didn't have to go look. They knew exactly where it was because this is, was doctrine being developed. And this is just like the church today studying the Bible, looking for rapture expectations. Are we 100% accurate in our rapture expectation? Only time will tell how accurate we were. How much did we hit accurately? How much will we say we were way off? Jews were doing the same thing, looking for Messiah. We're doing the same thing, looking for his second coming. But understand how Jewish this whole um, season of time was. So this is a quote from a Catholic scholar's book. Jesus was... Jesus of Nazareth was a Jew. He was born of a Jewish mother, received the Jewish sign of circumcision, and grew up in a Jewish town in Galilee. As a young man, he studied the Jewish Torah, celebrated Jewish feasts and holidays, and went on pilgrimages to the Jewish temple. When he was 30 years old, he began to preach in a Jewish synagogue about the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures, proclaiming the kingdom of God to the Jewish people. At the very end of his life, he celebrated the Jewish Passover, was tried by the Jewish council of priests and elders known as the Sanhedrin, and was crucified outside the great Jewish city of Jerusalem. Above his head hung a sign placed that read in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So if there's any question as to what our perspective and our hermeneutics should be, it's going to be one of historical and cultural evaluation. So we say that to understand when Jesus is ministering in the earth, he's looking at a people that have already predetermined their expectations of him. One of the expectations that, and let me back up and say, a lot of this is, is going to be oblivious to us because we simply have the gospels to study. We don't know Jewish culture unless we go read a commentary. And so you're going to have to take my word for it. I, I, I do have a bunch of slides that quote the Talmud. I don't have time for it. A lot of our understanding of messianic expectation comes in the time of Christ, comes from the Talmud where they recorded what they still believe the Messiah would do. And uh, the Jerusalem Talmud was written down or codified second century AD. So we're talking less than 100 years after the temple's destruction. And it is safely assumed that the Talmudic traditions reflect what was believed and anticipated during the life of Christ. And so from these writings, we understand their expectations and what scriptures they were looking to to base them on. So one of the cool ones uh, is that the Jews expected that when Messiah comes, wine will flow like rivers. That's from Micah. What was Jesus' first miracle? Water into wine, checking that box. And it accomplished many more things. So this is just an example of some of their expectations that he fulfilled, but probably not like they were hoping. 
which is it helps explain why they missed him, or so many of them did, not everybody. So understand this. Uh, the Jews, like us, they studied their Bible and built anticipatory messianic eschatology. And one of the premier doctrinal movements of this time was that they believed there was coming a new exodus in fulfillment as a, a, a shadow or answer to the, the, the first exodus. And they also understood this new exodus, which was going to bring them into the fullness of what God had promised them. Because remember, at this time, they've been under the Medo-Persian Empire, then they've been under the Macedonian Greek Empire, now they're under the Roman Empire. They're wanting to throw off the shackles of empires that they don't believe they should be under, even though Daniel prophesied all of them in, before they happened. So they've got this doctrine of a new exodus, which requires, in their understanding, logically, a new Moses and a new covenant and a new temple to bring them into a new promised land. This is all their expectations. There's scripture that backs up all their doctrine for this. And we know these are their expectations because the Talmud and the Mishnah record it. And I, have, I, have, I can pull those slides up. We'll just skip over it for time's sake. They had developed the doctrine of a new Moses based on Deuteronomy 8.15, where Moses 18 says, they will come after me a prophet. God will raise up a prophet and he will lead you and he will speak words and you will listen. And he's referred to as that prophet. In fact, I'll read it to you real quick, just so you know. Some of this stuff I'm going to tell you this morning, you have never heard in your entire life. And you should have an antenna up as a warning that I've never heard it before. Is it legitimate? And I can tell you that everything I'm teaching this morning has been taught for 2,000 years. We've just been in our little vein doing our little thing. Deuteronomy 18, uh, verse 15. The Lord God will raise up thee a prophet from the midst of thee of thy brethren like unto me. Moses said he'll be a prophet like me. Unto him shall you hearken. This is Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. According to all that thou desirest of the Lord thy God in Horeb in that day of the assembling, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, neither let me see the great fire anymore, lest I, I die. And the Lord said unto me, they have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee, like you, Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. Well, that prophecy was left unfulfilled. So one of the expectations is that there was coming a prophet, that prophet. And that's what he was referred to as that prophet. Now, if you remember your Bible and you study the ministry of John the Baptist, when he's baptizing in the River Jordan, they come to him and they ask him, are you Elijah? Are you the Messiah? Are you that prophet? And that's a reference to this scripture. So this is the new Moses. They're expecting their Messiah to be the new Moses because they're expecting the bigger doctrine is a new exodus. Get us away. Set us free. As we were under the Egyptians, we've been under the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Macedonians, and now the Romans. Set us free. Furthermore, the land that was given Moses, they weren't inhabiting the fullness of it, so we need an exodus. But they also understood the new exodus would require a new Moses, a new covenant. They based that off of Jeremiah 31 a new temple, which they based off of Ezekiel, and then the new promised land, and they have their scriptural backings for that. So hopefully you follow all that, and there's a lot of scripture to back it up. These were some of the messianic expectations Jesus faced in his ministry. Obviously, he fulfilled those that were accurate and disappointed them where they were wrong. Some of those include the political messianism, where he was not the political leader they expected, nor was he the military leader they expected. Remember the first time he came in on a donkey. What will he return on? A war horse. First time he's meek and lowly, the next time his mouth will destroy his enemies. The brightness of his coming. So they're accurate. They're just 2,000 years premature. Restoring the natural kingdom. He told the disciples of the day of the ascension, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father's given into his own hand. Nor did he destroy his enemies. In fact, he said, pray for them. So there's some expectations he's hitting because they were accurate in their analysis and their study, but others, they're just way wrong. Jesus was the new Moses. He was that prophet coming to establish the new covenant. That's what we're under. His body being something, as he said, something greater than the temple is here, allowing his followers to become new temples of the Holy Spirit. So there is a new temple leading us into a new promised land, except it's not the territory of the Levant or Palestine. It's heaven. 
And there will actually be two more temples, the one the Jews will build to reinstitute their temple sacrifice and the one Ezekiel speaks of that will come down from heaven. But what of the new promised lamb? For the believer that is heaven, then the millennial reign of Christ, where God will reestablish Israel with expanded territories. And so all this culminates and all this is the political environment. All this is the doctrinal environment. All this is what Pete, uh, the Lord is addressing when he preaches. He, he knows the expectations. He knows where they're coming from. He knows what they believe. He knows what's hindering them. <clears throat> Just like any good preacher can look at his people and know, I've got to lean on this. I've got to avoid that. I need to correct this. They have this expectation. Much as our democratic republic affects church governments, because America votes, churches think they should vote. Uh, the same kind of political expectations were put on Pharisees and rabbis, etc. Communion was instituted at the Last Supper. And this is where we want to bog down for a second. Communion was instituted at the Last Supper. And the Last Supper was a Passover meal. We call it the Last Supper because we're Southern Baptists. But it was technically a Passover meal. Now, for my own edification, how many of you have ever heard the term Passover setter? Just raise your hand high. You heard the term setter. Okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. All right. A Passover setter is basically what the Lord was doing. It's all right. S E, how do you spell that? With letters. S E D E R, setter. It's from the Hebrew that means order. And what this meant was, of course, you guys know how the Jews viewed the law. They wanted to keep it, and there were certain things the Old Testament commanded in a Passover meal and as a remembrance and as a ceremony. So the Jews were always organizing stuff and there's nothing wrong with that. So they developed a system or a formality to obey Exodus. And I'm going to read some of what that is, but the word setter means order. So Passover order, the order with which you keep the Passover. And, and for our understanding, so much of the Passover or so much of the Holy Communion sacramental meaning is tied to the Passover. So if you go back to Exodus 12, just write it down. We won't turn there. Passover required the slaughter of a spotless male lamb. This is them in Egypt as slaves. Let my people go. God says this is how it's going to work. Everybody gets, a pass everybody gets a lamb. It's called the Passover lamb because when they do it right, the angel of death will pass over the households. The father's took those lambs. They had to be a year old, blameless and spotless, and one for family. If the family wasn't big enough, Exodus says, combine families. The Talmud later says they averaged 10 people per lamb. Just for what it's worth, because the other commandment, how do they come to that? The Talmud's always like, and why do we say this? And then they answer, because of this. Why do we say 10 people? Because the Bible says there shall be no leftovers. And if there be any leftovers, burn it with fire the next morning. So there's commands for that. So they figure 10 people, it takes a lamb can feed 10 people. The father was to take the Passover lamb and sacrifice it. Now that should cause us pause because that's a priest's job. But in the Exodus with the first Passover, the head of home did that. And there's a reason for it. It's simple. Because originally God wanted everybody to be a nation of priests. So why didn't it stay that? Remember, they got to the mountain. He said, you shall be a, a holy nation to me, a royal priesthood. He said that to the whole people. He goes up to the mountain, and you know what happens? They worship a golden calf. And that seems to disqualify the whole nation because when Moses comes down, and this is Exodus 32, when Moses comes down and he sees the people given to idolatry, it's only about 3,000 people, of course, 3,000 people affects the nation. It's sinful. He looks among the camp and says, who is on the Lord's side? And for whatever reason, the whole tribe of Levi moved. Levi, the whole tribe of Levi said, we're, we're with you. And the Lord says, then take your swords and kill everybody guilty. So then now the, Le the Levi said, we're with you, with God. And God says, prove it. And Levit uh, Exodus 32 says, and the Levites moved through, or those are the tribe of Levi, and they killed everybody guilty. So that at the end of Exodus 32, it says, you have now promoted yourself to the priesthood, for you sided with God even against your own brethren. That's a good word of warning for ministers. You'll never answer a ministry calling if you can't side with God against your own brethren. 
Now that's all in Exodus chapter 32. I have read that a bunch of times, never seen it before because the Bible works that way. They became priests and they became those that took care of the tabernacle. They got no inheritance in the promised land, no land. Mending and caring for God became their inheritance. Leviticus, uh, Exodus 32, 25 through 29. So now coming back to the steps to the Passover, you choose a lamb. You sacrifice the lamb in the evening. And then one of the big requirements in the law of Moses was to teach your children. He says, and your children will come, your sons will come and ask, why is this night different? And so that becomes part of the celebration. The children are asking the question. This is a tradition today with the Passover setter that this is an important step. We'll get to in a minute. But this was how they wanted to honor that commandment in Exodus 12. Then you take the blood, you strike it, uh, the blood on the doorposts both the vertical doorposts and the horizontal doorposts. Then you roast the lamb. You don't just slit the lamb's throat. You roast the lamb and you eat it with unleavened bread or matzah, matzah and bitter herbs. So there's three ingredients to the Passover meal according to Exodus 12. The lamb, the unleavened bread, and the bitter herbs. And they're to eat the whole thing. Leftovers are to be burned. I don't believe it means you eat the hooves or the teeth. because You do eat the entrails. And I don't think it means you eat the fur either, because if you roast it, it burns. <laughs> I'm not really sure God wants to hear a whole nation of people going. Because if he did, the Jews would have made a tradition out of that. The other commandment for the first Passover was you're to keep this as a day of remembrance, a memorial forever. This was the first initiation of the Passover. So now Passover in the day of Christ. This is critical because you jump ahead about a thousand years, roughly, and 1,400 years, and things have changed. The Jews have studied the law of Moses through the intertestinal period, and they have uh, the Pharisees, uh, who were the sages, they, they called themselves the wall builders, and what they meant by that was they would build a wall of requirements and tradition to make sure they never violated the law. It was with good intentions that they added more traditions. Kind of like, we'll build so many walls, you can never get close enough to the law to sin against it. So they would look at laws and come up with laws to help you fulfill the law. And that's why the Lord says, you hypocrites, you will bind burdens to people yourselves, won't even lift a finger to move. But they thought they were doing the people a favor. So there's a whole bunch of traditions that have become now in the time of Christ associated with the Passover meal, and it's now called a setter because there's an order to it. The festival evolved. It became a memorial celebrating the deliverance from Egypt. Now, as Christians, we look at Passover as Jesus and Resurrection Sunday. The Jews did not look at it like that. They looked at it as a celebration of deliverance from slavery. We see it as Jesus dying for our sins. There were no sins associated with Passover to them. It was deliverance from slavery. Deliverance from slavery. We are free people now. At Passover, everyone looked back at the time to remember what God had done for the deliverance of Israel. The lamb could only be sacrificed. Now in the time of Christ, the lamb could only be sacrificed at Jerusalem, in Jerusalem at the temple. So this is a new thing, a new evolution, because in the time of Moses, everybody's sacrificing it in their home, striking their own doorpost. Now we have to, through the law of Moses, sacrifice the Passover lamb at the temple, if you can make the journey. And the lamb, the, the priest, only the priest could spill the blood. Only the priest could shed the blood. And they would slit the lamb's throat. They would pour the, bowl, the blood into a bowl. They would sprinkle it seven times on the brazen altar. And then they would dump the blood at the base of the altar. And... Uh, it has been estimated, Josephus says 256,000 lambs were sacrificed on the day of uh, on, on, uh, Passover. Uh, but they think that's highly inflated, and, and there's reasons for it um, in antiquity. It has been more realistically estimated that between 30 and 50,000 lambs were sacrificed every Passover in the time of Christ. One lamb for 10 people, so half a million people at the high end, Four gallons of blood per lamb, which means 200,000 gallons of blood being spilt at the base of the altar in the temple. Archaeology has also recovered drains because the law requires you to pour the blood out on the earth. And if you have a temple platform and a temple complex, it's all marble, limestone. You're not touching dirt. So they had these vertical things, these vertical drains that were there in the altar area, which could then allow the blood to pour it out. 
I may cover that next time, next week, because there's some pretty cool stuff about how the aqueducts would then wash in and mix with all this blood. They actually would clog it so it would be a pool of blood. And that way it was all done at once, and the priests were barefooted. And then what they would do is they would pull the plugs and open the aquifer and allow the water to pour in like a giant basin around the altar. And they would drain in these giant vertical shafts and spit out the side of the temple mount, blood and water mixed, thrusting forth out of the temple into the brook Kidron. Jesus said, you destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And they stuck a spear in it and out thrust blood and water mixed. Pretty cool stuff. The people then returned home after they had had their lambs sacrificed and they roasted their lambs with their families for about 10 people. They kept the Passover meal. The Jews developed the custom of celebrating the Passover with four cups of wine. This is called the four cups of the setter. And I read this and I thought, y'all are making this junk up. Because that's what an arrogant teacher does when he studied everything he thought. So I just, four cups, really? Why have I never heard of this? And then you Google it. Every Jewish website talks about it. Then you get into the Talmud. The Talmud talks about it, which means it's 2,000 plus years old. So there's four cups to the setter. So then, then tradition says, and why the four cups? So then the Talmud has a thousand different reasons why. Some say, some of the uh, sages said it was to, uh, to answer God's four deliverances in the Exodus. I will take you out. I will rescue you. I will redeem you. I will bring you into the promised land. So some say the tradition evolved from those four promises. Others say it answers Pharaoh's four evil decrees, the decree of slavery, the decree to murder male children, the decree to drown the boys, and the decree of no straw for their labor. Others say the four cups of wine represent the four mentions of uh, wine in Pharaoh's butler's dream. But either way, they have a reason for it. So this becomes now the setter. Now, if you were, some of you, any of you ever done a Passover setter? Raise your hand. One, two, three, four, five, six. So if you do a modern Passover setter, they will typically do the four cups. Uh, and somebody was just telling me they even have the four, the setter of the Messianic Jews now. So it's evolving again. And the reason they evolve, and let me back up, it's evolved even since the time of Christ because when the temple was destroyed, you could no longer sacrifice the Passover lamb. So modern setters that modern Jews do don't involve a lamb at all because they don't have a place to sacrifice it. So they've incorporated other ceremonies in the Passover to represent the remembrance. Remember, for them, it's not about forgiveness of sin, which it is for us. For them, it's a remembrance of coming out of Israel, uh, Egypt. So the lamb's not important to them. That's the difference. We think of Passover because we're on this side of Calvary as the lamb who redeems us, the lamb who forgives us, the blood who forgives us. That's because that's what Jesus took and reinterpreted it as God can. The Jews still look at Passover as a celebration of deliverance from slavery. We do too, the slavery of sin. So it's a to- same cele- ceremony, celebration, different interpretation. So even though they want their temple, even though they want to sacrifice a Passover lamb, it's okay that they don't because it means nothing to them because the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, is all about the forgiveness of sins. That's not what it is for us. All right, so please follow here. So now you have in the time of Christ the tradition of the four cups. This is in the Talmud. It's Talmud Mishnah Pesachim, chapter 10, 1 through 11 or so. I've read it five or 10 times this week, over and over and over and over and over again. Four cups. The first cup, the Jews called the cup of sanctification. The father would gather his family together around a large table. This is Jewish tradition. This is recorded in history. This is recorded in the Talmud. This is important because Jesus would have done it this way because it's the tradition he was handed. It's also the tradition that his disciples would have been handed, so it's the expectation of everybody coming to his last supper. His family would gather together around a large table at which they would recline. The reclining was important because to them it symbolized their freedom from Egypt. The cup of wine was then mixed with a little water, and the official blessing for the feast was pronounced. Then the food was brought, including the roasted Passover lamb, the herbs, the dishes of uh, sauce, but they were not eaten. The first cup of wine was then consumed, and I added to a Westerner, this would be the opening ceremony. Now, don't think of our dinners, because we just, honestly, in all disrespect, we say rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, yay God, and then we chow. 
This was a ceremony. And even though there was a meal to be consumed, it was a ceremony. And there were stages. And when you have ceremonies and stages and liturgies, it makes things a little bit more ordered and reverential. Every one of us, we're about to do Thanksgiving. You know how it is. Mama and the sisters and the aunties, they get together. They cook for two days. They have a spread big enough to give a hippo diabetes. We get together, we pray over it, and it's consumed in 25 minutes or less. And then you spend the next two days cleaning up. We've added an American tradition. We go watch football and fall asleep doped up on tryptophan. You wake up. Food is still on the kitchen table. You start nuking it all. And you wait for the next football game to come on. And this is how we celebrate the pilgrims. <laughs> there needs to be a football team called the whatever pilgrims. <laughs> so the second cup is then mixed. This is called the cup of proclamation in the Talmud. The second cup of wine would be mixed but not drunk. And this is when the father would begin to answer his children's questions about the significance of the feast. This was in fulfillment of Exodus 12, 24 through 27. And the Mishnah Pesachim states that the father would answer his children according to the intelligence and the ability of the son. So if you've got a three-year-old, you're not going too deep. But at this time, they also developed and evolved four questions. So the Talmud requires four questions. This is the tradition. So when the son is learning, he's, dad is giving him, this is the first question, then let me answer it. Here's the second question. So it becomes a tradition that is held every year. So the four questions that were asked concerning the Passover night by the children was, number one, why do we eat matzah tonight? That's the unleavened bread. And the answer is, and the father would explain it according to his intelligence and ability, that the child's not the father's, that we were in a rush and we could not mix our bread and it could not leaven because we had to flee. And he begins to use these four questions to teach the Jewish boy about their legacy, their heritage, and their God. Question number two, why do we only eat bitter herbs? Every other night we eat all sorts of herbs and plants. Why only bitter herbs tonight? And he would answer, because it symbolizes our time in Egypt where we were bitter and treated by the Egyptians and, and, and heavy laden in slavery. Third question is, how come every night we eat meat all sorts, boiled, baked, etc., but tonight we only eat roasted lamb? And the father would say, because this is the Passover lamb, which we were commanded to sacrifice and pass uh, and roast and eat, that the Lord and the angel of death would pass over us. And then the final question is, why do we dip food twice tonight? There was a special sauce. They would dip the herbs and the bread in that twice. Every other night we just dip once. Now we have to eat dip twice. And the father would explain that as well. The father then, according to the Talmud, and this is the tradition of the time of Christ, the father begins with Israel's shame and concludes with their glory, reciting Deuteronomy 26, 5 through 11, which I purposely did for the offertory. A Syrian ready to die, an Aramean ready to die was my father, but he went down into Egypt, was evil and treated, and he came up mighty, etc. The father would also explain the parts of the meal, the Passover lamb because God passed over us, the matzah because we had no time to let our bread rise, bitter herbs because our life was bitter under Egypt, and then Gamaliel, who was one of the great Pharisees in, a, uh, uh, um, in the time of Christ, he said that each and every generation, that in each and every generation, the person, the Jew, must view himself as though he personally left Egypt. They must say thus, this which the Lord did for me, not this which the Lord did for my forefathers. This is why it was so important to the Jews. They wanted to keep alive the fact that God is still delivering. God is still delivering. God is still delivering. So it was taught by this great Pharisee, Gamaliel, who, who Mos, uh, uh, Paul sat at the feet of, and a contemporary of Christ. He taught his students and his disciples, we say this that God did for us, not this that God did for them. He does it for us. And then the other prescription, according to the Talmud, and this is critical, uh, is that they would sing the Halil, which is Psalm 113 to 118. It's sung at every major festival. But the Talmud also says at this point, you'd only sing Psalm 113 and 114. That leaves Psalm 115, 16, 17, and 18 to be sung later. And there's even debate in the Talmud as to where do we stop? Where do we pick up at? And it's 
exhausting to read the rabbi's debate on what is the proper way to keep the law of Moses. But Halil is agreed upon by everybody. Psalm 113 through 118, this is what's sung at the Passover. And at the Seder, it's sung in different stages at different points in the meal. So let's get to the third cup. The third cup is called the cup of blessing. The third cup, the mixing of the third cup, signaled the eating of the supper. A blessing would be said over the meal, and the meal would be eaten, beginning with an appetizer of the unleavened bread dipped in a sauce. That's why we dip twice. After the meal was eaten, the third cup would have been prayed over again and then consumed. So you see the cups are mixed, they're prayed over, something happens, and then to conclude that stage, then the cup is consumed. And the Bible tells us, excuse me, not the Bible, the Talmud says you may not drink any wine between the third and fourth cup. You can drink continuously, but between the third and fourth cup, no wine is to be consumed. And they have a reason for it, but I don't know what it is because I can't find it. Fourth cup. This is called the cup of praise. The mixing of the fourth cup of wine signaled the singing of the last three psalms of the Halil, Psalm 115 through 118. After the singing of Psalm 118, the fourth and final cup of wine would be consumed, and this would complete the Passover meal. So again, it's called a setter. That means an order. There's a special order to all of this. Now, this is very, very, very important because if we want to understand the Last Supper, you have to understand the tradition walking into it because it has major, major significant implications for us. Jesus kept the Passover setter. He walked through the stages of this tradition as he had inherited it from the sages, but he changes it. And this is critical. This is what we're going to look at. He changes the Passover because if he's going to be the new Moses, kicking off the new Exodus, establishing a new covenant, there must be a new Passover. If he's the new Moses, and he is, and if there's a new covenant, and there's about to be, remember he said, this is my cup in the new covenant. I'm telling you, he's taking all their expectations. He's fulfilling them and then inverting them. Then there has to be a new Passover. So we ask the question, what changed? Now, before we can say what changed, I want you to know I've spent about four days reading all the Passover accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John over and over and over and over and over again because you know how the gospels are. They pick up this detail and omit that one. And then the next gospel omits this one and picks up that one. So what I have spent a lot of time, even this morning, I was still adding some verses and tweaking it. I've taken all four gospel accounts of the Last Supper and I've shuffled them together to put them in chronological order of a one-hour meal as best I can. If you were to like super anal study this for the next six months, you might find a mistake or two and we'd be open for tweaking it, but the heart of it will be communicated. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to read it to you. Uh, It's about a page and a half. No, that's a lie. It's two and a half pages. So now we're just going to read the Bible. I'm not even going to bother to tell you whether I'm in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Just listen because you know all these scriptures. I'm reading out of the NASB. So let's just now hear the story. You'll also be able to tell stuff I omit because it's not significant to what we're trying to move towards this morning. So I'll begin in Luke 22, and then we quickly jump to John. Now the festival of the unleavened bread had arrived when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. They went off to the city and found everything as Jesus had said, and they prepared the Passover meal there. During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come, uh, had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. I would add that's a servant's job, and that's offending them. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him, and for this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? 
You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is the scripture. It is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. When the hour had come, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat I shall never again eat until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave to them, saying, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is a repetition on purpose. And he said, This is my blood of the covenant which is being poured out for many. Truly I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going to be is going as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began discuss, to discuss among themselves which one of them it would who was going to do this thing. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of whom he was speaking. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him one at a time, Surely not I, Lord. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom at this time one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter nodded to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. And he, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, and to me this is, I've lived in these passages, and so I've played it out in my mind over and over again. They're all reclining. And there's John laying on Jesus' bosom. And there's Peter over there who nods to him. So you see John lean, sit up and lean over and say, what? Ask him who he's talking about. Okay. And leaning back on his bosom... And leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom said to him, Lord, who is it? They always get the kid to do the, dirt, the dirty work. <laughs> Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip this morsel of bread and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. It's pretty blatant. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it's not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, none of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing because Jesus, Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and he will glorify him, him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So that is all of the stories shuffled together in order. And I want, hopefully you caught the fact that in there, Jesus prays over two different cups of wine. Also in there, they start and stop eating multiple times. And it's something you totally miss if you don't understand the setter, the, the Talmudic, sagittical Passover feast, as was the thrust of the culture. Here at the conclusion, I finished with John 13, 33. Here begins the great Passover discourse where Jesus prepares the disciples for the church age and then John 17's concluding prayer. So that's a lot to read. We could have thrown it up there, but I just wanted to read it to you. Sometimes you just close your eyes and just picture yourself there. So I ask the question now, how was this Last Supper typical? Because this is where some really cool things are fulfilled. So how was it typical? How did Jesus fulfill the law here? It's typical because he kept it in accordance with Exodus 
and it was, quote, prepared according to tradition and law. There was a room set aside. It was the day of the lamb's sacrifice, and after the day of the lamb's sacrifice, they would then roast the lamb and eat it. And all this was prepared for him, and, the, and the, his disciples took all day to make the preparations according to the Gospels. Jesus, according to the Talmud now, he played the role of the father, hosting the setter for his disciples. He reclined at the table, according to Talmudic tradition, symbolizing freedom. He prayed over the first cup of wine, according to Talmudic tradition, and initiated the sacred meal. He broke one of the pieces of matzah, presumably the middle piece, according to Talmudic tradition. Now, one of the things you see in modern setters, I can't find this in the Talmud, but they got it from somewhere. There are three pieces of matzah, and they set the other two aside, the top and the bottom, and they take the middle one and they break it. And they pronounce the blessing of it. And I can't help, I haven't heard this taught anywhere, I haven't read it anywhere, but I can't think, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. You set aside the Father and the Holy Ghost, you take the Son and you break it. And that's the tradition. The other thing is they take one part of the broken piece immediately, they wrap it in a napkin and they go hide it. So that once the Passover is done, the kids go and they find it and they bring it out. You can't make this stuff up. He broke one of the pieces of matzah, presumably the middle piece, according to the Talmudic tradition. He had dipping sauce and dipped bread into it. They would also dip the bitter herbs into it. He prayed over another cup of wine. The one, the Bible says, and after they had eaten, he took the cup. So this would have been the third cup, the cup of blessing. I have a verse here. The cup of blessing. So after the third cup, or after they had eaten, he took the third cup, and that becomes the cup that he uses to explain the new covenant. So Paul says, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ. That's hearkening to the Talmud's calling or name of the third cup, the cup of blessing. So Paul's affirming that what the, the, third, the cup that Jesus prayed over for the new covenant, explaining this cup in my blood, is the third cup, the cup of blessing. Now, everything I've read to you so far is from the Talmud, and now we're getting into the New Testament. He prayed over the third cup, and it was the third cup after they had eaten that he prays and says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, is not the cup of blessing, the blessing cup, which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ, is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ. Once Judas departed the supper, Jesus addresses his disciples as my little children. That goes back to now part of the fulfillment of the Passover. The father has to answer his children's questions. So John 13, 33, Judas leaves. And then as soon as he goes out, he says, now is the son of man glorified. And then he says, my little children. And that begins th three chapters four: John 13, John 14, John 15, John 16, where Jesus teaches about the church age. But he fulfills this type of now explain the Passover to your children. But remember, he's making a new Passover because he is the lamb. Do you remember how many questions the children asked? Four. Guess how many questions the disciples ask in John chapters 13, 14, and 15? Four. You read this and you think, we're stupid people. We don't know our God. We're trying to get our blessing on. We go to churches with jumbotrons and entertainment. And this is stuff that has been available to us to understand and we're looking for the easiest, lowest church in town with the least requirement and the hottest sacrilegious coffee bar in town. He asks four questions. Peter asks two, then he shuts up. <laughs> Lord, where are you going? Lord, why can I not follow you right now? Then doubting Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do, how do we know the way? And that's when he says, I am the way. And then Judas, not Iscariot, but the other, says, Lord, what has happened that you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? And that's interesting is that near the end of these four chapters, the disciples begin to question among themselves because it's like they know we get four questions and we can't ask anymore. And it says, and the Lord perceived, why question you among yourselves? It's like they're, they're helping to keep the setter as well. Well, that's one, two, three, four. Oh, I had one more we wanted to ask, but... 
But also remember, he said, little children. As the Talmud states, according to the intelligence and the ability of the son, the father answered the questions. Jesus fulfilled this tradition when he said during this discourse, I have many things to say unto you, but you can't bear it now. He concluded with a lengthy prayer. John chapter 17 is his prayer. And that's how you would have concluded the Passover. And then he sang a hymn, which would have been the Halil. Pastor Okwoko was once in our house and we were talking about the Passover and the night of the betrayal. And he said, you know, they sang a hymn as they went to the Mount of Olives. And I didn't remember reading that. And I said, okay, you, know, you got to act like you're smart. Yeah. And he said, I wonder what hymn it was which was a profound question to me. I didn't know the Jews already had the answer. Pastor Okwoko was a brilliant mind, but you don't know everything. But the Jews by default would have said, oh, I know exactly what hymn. It was a Halil, because that's what you do on Passover. So the Halil would have been sung at the end of Passover, 15, 16, 17, 18. 17 is very short. So 16 and 18, the primary ones. I want to read you some highlights from Psalm 116 and 118. And keep in mind, this is what's been ordained for hundreds of years to be sung at the Passover. And this is what Jesus sings on his way to the betrayal. I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications. Because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I shall call upon him as long as I live. The cords of death encompass me and the terrors of hell come upon me. I find distress and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech you, save my life. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you've rescued my soul from death, my, tear, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits toward me? I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of all of his saints. Oh, Lord, surely I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your handmaid. You have loosed my bonds. To you I shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 116. Now, Psalm 118. Remember, he's marching towards his betrayal. He's leaving the upper room now, going across the brook Kidron up into the Mount of Olives to Gethsemane. This is the hymn they're singing because this is the hymn every Jew sang, except he's about to be the Passover lamb. Psalm 118, beginning in verse 15. The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I will not die but live and tell of the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give, you, give thanks to you. You have answered me and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. I mean, the, the, the fittingness, it's how apropos is it that these are the psalms ordained to be sung by the Lamb of God. So now here's where we really bog down. I shouldn't say bog down. This is where I think I'll cause your heart to stoop when we look at how was this Last Supper atypical. I've given you a lot of information so far. You're drinking from a fire hose. It's holy water. <laughs> Jesus began with a foot washing ceremony, which was never instituted before, symbolizing the washing of the water by the word. So that's something new. It does not appear Jesus drank any wine at the Last Supper at all, something the Talmud required even the poorest of Jews to observe. The thing that stands out the most, Jesus never once spoke of the Exodus or the Lamb, and that was required. And what we've just read, there's no mention of Moses, there's no mention of Egypt, there's no mention of deliverance, there's no mention of the lamb, there's no mention of bitter herbs. All he does is now focus all the attention off the bitter herbs and the lamb. He takes the matzah and says, this is my body, and he takes the cup and says, this is my blood. He totally changes the symbolism and adds new ones to move forward. He then began to explain the future church age, not the past exodus. He took three chapters to explain what was about to happen for all believers, not had what had once happened for the Hebrews. He was instituting a new Passover for a new Exodus. 
And as he said, do this in remembrance of me, it was instituted as a memorial like the Exodus was. This exposition also set forth the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Jesus never taught on the Holy Spirit in his whole ministry until the Last Supper. Jesus departed the Passover meal without the fourth cup of wine. When we look closely, there is the assumed first cup. You pray over it, you recline. And also you see when we combine all these, tests, all these uh, gospels, there's a sitting up and a laying back down, and a washing of feet, then a laying back down, and an eating, then blessing a cup. The first cup is implied because they kick off the Passover meal. Then he takes a second cup. This is one spoken of, and he says, pass it around. They do. And then they do some stuff. Then he breaks bread. Then he blesses the third cup. And when he blesses the third cup, he says, I shall not drink of the fruit of the vine until I do it in the kingdom. So there's no fourth cup for Jesus. There's no fourth cup mentioned. The hymn Halil is mentioned, but not a fourth cup of wine. So technically, the Lord had left his final desires Passover incomplete. He and the disciples then move to the Gethsemane to pray. The disciples fall asleep. You know that, right? Bunch of goofballs. Check out what the Talmud says. If some of the participants of the setter fell asleep, thereby interrupting their meal, they may eat from the Paschal lamb when they awake. If the entire company fell asleep, <laughs> the 11, this is Mishnah Pesachim. This is second century AD. These are the, the rabbis are writing this. Why do you think all the gospels record the guys falling asleep? Because they know it's a big no-no. The entire company fell asleep. They may not eat anymore. If they all fall asleep, this is considered a complete interruption. And how many times do they fall asleep? Three times. And that's why he says, take your rest. But what of the unfinished setter? What of the unfinished fourth cup? The cup that would symbolize the completion of the Passover. And he went a little beyond them and he fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup. Let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. If he drinks the fourth cup, it's done. He's dead because it, it completes the Passover. It completes the death, the honoring, the pouring out of blood. This is why he says three times, can this cup pass from me? It's why he doesn't drink it. It's why he's postponing it. He knows if he drinks it. He's finished. After this, he's on the cross. Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, he said, I'm thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had finished or received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now, there was a cup of wine available to him when they got ready to crucify him. That's in Mark's gospel. It's full of myrrh, and they use it as a, um, an analgesic and a benumber. It's also Jewish tradition to give the condemned a myrrh, a wine mixed with myrrh to numb him. And he rejects it because he wants to suffer the cross without any painkiller. But now he's on the cross, and he knows what must be done. And he says to fulfill Scripture. What Scripture? The Bible doesn't say anything. I thirst because he has to drink this fourth cup, which is wild because it's a Jewish tradition, not a Mosaic law. And yet he still fulfills it as a testimony to what everybody saw in the moment. So the fourth cup, though, is the one that's called the cup of praise. Praise as Jesus, as it says of him, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. As the Halil said, I will yet give you thanksgiving. I will walk in the land of the living. I will enter through the righteousness of God. You have become my salvation. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in his sight. You know, with that understanding, I don't know if we could ever be so flippant with the bread and the cup again. With that understanding, and the Catholics have a lot of that understanding, I get why they still do wine. I get why some churches use wafers as close as they can to unleavened bread to make it as sacred as possible. 
And even with that kind of teaching and understanding of everything Christ endured for us and his, his fear, uh, you know, he's so crushed in the garden, he's sweating great drops of blood. How could you ever dare dress as a Ken doll and preach the gospel or put a roller coaster on your platform or, or crucify Tony Stark and Iron Man and Woody? How can you ever be such a heretic and a blasphemous moron except you don't know God? I think we have a new appreciation now for the Last Supper, and I think we'll always see it in a different light. Amen.